The Spin-Off Podcast Network. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by SparkLab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about SparkLab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. You're listening to Business Is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business Is Boring is made by The Spin-Off with help from Callaghan Innovation, New Zealand's innovation agency. Here's your host, Simon Pound. When refugees come to New Zealand, they find a lot of help from religious groups to get started with housing and public services, with volunteers helping at every step. One of those volunteers, though, working with the Red Cross, noticed that employment was something that was hard for refugees to get. After two years, 40% aren't in work. So to try to change this, this volunteer looked around for a business that might use their skills and decided to leave a law career at one of the top law firms to set up a company making underwear here in Wellington with refugee workers. Alicia Watson didn't have a background in clothing, and some of her workers still needed a lot of training. It was a hard first year, with Alicia sharing highs and lows through the crowdfunding, media and blogs. The company is called Nisa, Arabic for woman, and now Nisa has just opened its first store in Wellington, where shoppers will be able to see production going on around them with an open workroom. To talk the idea, the journey and what's next, Alicia joins us now by phone from Wellington. Kelda, good morning. Hi, Simon. Good morning. Hey, so tell me, tell me a little bit about how you came to to set up Nisa. Um, well, yeah, as you mentioned, I was um, working as a lawyer, and you know, I wanted to kind of give back in my spare time, so I was volunteering at community law, and then also um, also with the Red Cross to help resettle recently arrived refugee families, and I can very much recommend it to anyone in New Zealand who's wanting to find a really practical way to help vulnerable people in the community. Um, It was quite, I guess, a transformative experience because you're placed with a family and you get to see, you know, exactly what they're up against, their, like, hopes and dreams and also their, you know, um, all of the troubles and struggles they have trying to set up a life in New Zealand. So, yeah, that's kind of how I got involved with the refugee community and then also – I guess, the breeding ground for my kind of, you know, social enterprise ideas, I guess. How did you come to be involved with the Red Cross in the first place? Um, well, they, um, I guess just how anyone would. So they, they run, they run programs for, um, to train up people to help resettle former refugees. So a team is placed with a family. So just, just like anyone else would, I kind of, um, you know, looked it up online. I kind of knew a little bit about the program um, just through the media. And there was a lot of coverage at the time that I started volunteering because it was when that um, 
that photo came out of that little boy who'd been washed up on the beach. Um, I can't maybe I can't remember exactly where his body was found, but I think he was a little Syrian boy. Mm. And that um, I remember the Red Cross saying that after that photo came out, they were just swamped with applications for volunteers because it really, I guess, galvanized people around this issue and, you know, prompted people to want to help. <laughs> And what did you find from uh, getting involved with these families? Like I often think, as um, mm. ha- having small kids and having to navigate the system, I often think mm. sometimes, boy, if I wasn't lucky enough to be a good advocate, we, we might mm. not always get what we were hoping to, um, the help we were always hoping to get. Yeah, um, well, it's funny you mentioned children because uh, a lot of the time, <laughs> especially if the, if the parents don't speak great English, having children in the family is lovely because you can really – Usually, you know, if if someone likes your kids and is playing with them, you'll like them. <laughs> so even if you can't really communicate that much, like children are a great thing to bond over and, you know, create a real sense of playfulness within a family. And so it was a really, I was really lucky that the families I were looking after were really big families. And so there's always lots to do and lots to laugh about and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, it also meant that um, because there are quite a few children, like, you know, someone someone getting sick was like a, a really big deal and they're not sure how seriously to take it. And even even a trip to, to hospital or anything like that is just so hard, um, basically because they, you know, one of the families I looked after, they couldn't even, I'm pretty sure people would just pronounce their names incorrectly, but for example – how people would pronounce their names, they wouldn't recognize. So if someone, if a doctor comes into a waiting room and says their name, they wouldn't respond to it. And so you can just imagine if they were there in a hospital waiting room alone, what an absolute disaster that would be because they couldn't even be summoned anywhere. Um, so yeah, it's definitely really, you know, they, they need a lot of support, especially if they have basically no English. And in fact, one of the families I looked after um, when one of the family members arrived, she was about eight months pregnant. So we had a birth immediately after she arrived to kind of think about and worry about. And that's even in the parts of the system that are, uh, you know, dedicated to helping people. So I imagine that once you get into other parts of uh, society, helping these people becomes exponentially harder where people aren't set up to try and accommodate people like business and work. (laughs) Yeah, so, um, yeah, that's a really good point. So, um, yeah, if you go to the GP, there are systems set up like Language Line, for example. So there are ways for people to access translating services to help them with their fundamental needs. But um, I guess it's a, it's a controversial point, but <laughs> internationally work isn't necessarily like, recognized as a human right or a, or a need. It's almost seen as, I guess, sometimes a little bit of a luxury, like, oh, yeah, it would be um, – you know, if you can manage it, good for you. If you can't, too bad. Um, and so not enough support is given to people who really have stuff to give but need the support to kind of make it over the finish line and secure that job and be an awesome employee into the future. And also to feel kind of engaged and part of a society. You, you know, you want to mm. be um, you, you want to be uh, meeting people and building networks and using your skills and, and kind of in, integrating fully into any kind of community. And so 
I, I imagine Absolutely. that a lot of these people are really keen to work. Uh, mm. You know, we're all conditioned from kind of preschool that if we're not busy between nine and three, we're bad people. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and finding it hard. And so, and so there was this something yeah. that you came up against, like seeing these people trying to get work and just not being able to navigate it. Oh, absolutely. Um, actually, the funny thing is that I, I kind of approached this with all of my own cultural preconceptions as, I guess, a Western-educated woman. And a lot of, like, and that's been challenged often. And now I've got quite a, you know, more of a nuanced idea than maybe when I went into it. So um, one thing is that uh, quite a few of my employees um, have never worked before in their life because they are mothers. So, you know, they would have gotten married when they were in, actually in their early teens or mid-teens and had children straight away. Um, and they'd never, ever planned to work, basically, because in, in their home, home countries, that would, you know, that's not really what you do. Your, your husband works and you stay at home and raise the family. And then they arrive in New Zealand um, and suddenly their husband can't find work. And so there's this there's this whole kind of, upheaval within the family because it's like what do you do we need money um someone needs to find work and often it's the woman who can find a job or you know either like cooking or cleaning or whatever and so that's it's a really interesting and challenging space I think for a lot of them because that's you know it's not like they've been dreaming it wasn't part of their plan I guess is a way to say it but it's amazing to be part of that because what you see is the the joys and pleasures and meaning that work can bring even when it wasn't on the cards for you and I imagine that the men also probably expecting to be able to work and not being able Mm. to that must put Mm. some some interesting dynamics on the world when the woman who hadn't had a public life suddenly have a public life and the men don't (sighs) Totally. I think that's what the thing that I love the most about Nisa and our, and our workshop is that it brings women who wouldn't necessarily have that many relationships out, outside of their family into contact with a whole nother world of people, you know, and like, you know, other women from all over the world in a business context outside of their family life. It's just so um, it's so awesome to be able to give someone a whole other world. Um, and yeah, I'm just so stoked to do that because it means just greater independence for them. Like, you know, they can catch a bus by themselves to work. They can like communicate with strangers. There's so many things that they can do because they're used to doing that every single day at work. Um, and and economic independence and kids growing up, seeing mum, uh, navigating the world. Well, all of those things are so important. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's what I'm. For re- resettling families, yeah, yeah, for mm-hmm. for, pe- for people uh, com- coming fresh to a culture, and so, so I mean, mm. that, those are some amazing kind of you know challenges to have. Uh, <laughs> and, and yeah. how, how did you how did you land on deciding to do kind of ethical underwear as the business? Yeah, oh, so I get <laughs> it's a bit of a funny one, eh? So I um, I guess there there are so many answers to that question, and. I'm I'm really really glad we went down that path. So the first, the easiest thing to say is basically that we we have a really strange customer pro- profile. So we have equal spins from people from 20 years old to 60 years old. 
So we <laughs> and not many businesses can claim that like level of demographic flatness. And it's basically because everyone needs underwear. Um, and when you're creating a social enterprise, I, I knew from the very beginning that we'd be really, in some ways, just t preaching to the converted. Like we had to, um, we'd have a small group of society that was really passionate about what we were trying to do. And we needed to sell something to every single one of those people that wanted to help us out. We couldn't really be a niche product that was really style specific. We wanted to be style inclusive. And so to go down the fashion, the generic kind of fashion route, I didn't think it was a great idea because, you know, style is so distinct and unique and what's beautiful to one person is hideous to another. And so I thought, you know, underwear is a really good basic and women wear cotton underwear most of the time. And I saw a real gap in that market because I know, you know, when you go to underwear stores as a woman, you know, three quarters of the store is this crazy lacy underwear and like very unloved at the very back is the kind of boring cotton section. And I just thought that that could do with a bit of a shake up. <laughs> um, so yeah, there are many, many reasons. And another one, I guess, is just that I didn't really want to be part of the culture of waste that was often connected with fashion because I, I love secondhand clothing. So I thought, you know what, like, not many people are willing to buy underwear secondhand, so I couldn't buy conscience because <laughs> probably rest of it easier. <laughs> uh, and and I imagine it's also really um, uh, universal as well. Like um, yeah. it doesn't matter if you have a a um, a, a burka or a uh, yes. or a lacy little black dress or something. You're still yeah. wearing underwear underneath, so it's a very exactly. universal thing, isn't it? Exactly, and that's why it's so um, you know at at Christmas time, it was amazing because so, like, I was astounded. Like, the business just shot through the roof because so many people were buying it for their friends and family. Um, it was so exciting. Um, but I'm also really glad that we got into the that kind of gifting space as well because it's, you know, there it's so lovely to get someone something with a story behind it that you can tell them about and share with them. And it's a great story, but also yeah. underwear, especially mm. cotton underwear, is mm. ludicrously inexpensive if you're buying yeah. it from yeah. uh, a big retailer. And so yeah. what does it take to set up an ethical, organic cotton underwear business <laughs> with kind of um, some uh, workers who are experienced sewers and some yeah. who had to learn? And yeah. a first-time CEO who didn't have a clothing industry background. Yeah. <laughs> oh, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, <laughs> I guess, <laughs> I guess, yeah, my own inexperience is, is both a blessing and a curse. Um, so I, I guess I did what, you know, if you knew even how, like, if you had any experience, you probably wouldn't have done it. So I guess the, in some ways it's great because it gives you the, the naivety to be like, oh, yeah, that, that'll be easy. Um, and then you just kind of commit and then you're like, oh, dear. <laughs> um, and so that that's lovely. But also, I guess I think I could do – I for the first few months that I opened the business, I was – I had taught myself how to use industrial sewing machines and I I was like, Oh, I'm like, I'm a lawyer. I learned how to sew two years ago or even a year ago before selling the business. I was like, Oh, if I can do it, anyone can do it. 
And it turns out that that's not necessarily true. So number one, I was quite a terrible teacher. And like, basically, I don't think that was not, yeah, that wasn't a great decision to not bring on outside expertise. And then secondly, I think my assumptions, because I had taught myself to sew and I found it like not that challenging, I guess I had like, there are actually several personality traits associated with sewing that you can't really train for. And the biggest one is attention to detail. So there are certain things that um, while it's easy to sew, some people will never, ever be able to actually see what they need to see. I, I, um, I might just challenge you there, Alicia, of it yeah. being easy to sew as well. because. Yeah. I wonder if sewing's just one of these things like nursing or yeah. uh, elderly care that because it's been a mainly female workforce, mm. it's been just like dismissed by society as kind of easy or menial. When no. in yeah. fact, you know, sewing's three dimensional maths. You need to have kind oh, of, yeah. you need to have a pattern and the differing kind of, um, the, 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 the differing shapes in your head moving at once. You need yeah. attention to detail. You, it's hard work. It's physical. It's long hours. Like it's, it, it's not an easy, I mean, you, 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 you may have um, had an aptitude for it, but I don't mm. know if it's actually easy. No. Okay. I'll, I'll correct myself. It's, it's. It's easy to sew. It's hard to sew well. Yeah, Maybe okay. that's a better way to say it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, because anyone can like pick up a piece of fabric and shove it through a machine. But um, this might be getting a bit technical. But our tolerance for um, so basically in industry, usually you'd have about a centimeter tolerance for seams, which means that you can get you can like you don't have to line things up perfectly. It will you you can kind of like fudge it a little bit. Um, so our tolerance is usually around two millimeters for matching up seams because when you've got underwear, if you imagine you're sewing a section of fabric that's, let's say, six centimeters, if you're a centimeter out, it's going to be very, very wrong. Yeah. <laughs> so our tolerances are so small, which greatly increases the skill required to actually sew everything. So what um, one of the things I decided to do after we had our crowdfunding campaign and we raised quite a lot of money off that. Yeah, t t tell me about that. Tell me about the crowdfunding yeah. campaign. Sorry. Um, so, yeah, just bouncing around. Um, we, so, yeah, we, we started, we decided to do a crowdfunding campaign at the, at the very beginning, just when we set up the workshop. Um, and I decided to kind of set up the workshop first and then crowdfund second, because I knew that it's really hard to raise money for a plan and it's relatively easy if you have something that's currently in operation that you're trying to fund for. So I was like, first I'll set up, I'll set up the workshop, I'll get everyone on board, we'll start training, and then I'll see if this crowdfunding thing can work for us. So yeah, we we're on the front page of the Dominion Post on the very first day that the crowdfunding campaign launched. Um, and so we and I made all these kind of prizes for, that were like maybe one or two thousand dollars. Or like rewards, I should say, and I kind of made them up because I was like, no one will, you know, just give us a thousand dollars to like, you know, help us design a collection or like, you know, things that are essentially kind of, you know, like fluffy like rewards. They don't really mean a lot, you know. And they were the first things to sell. I was just like, blow, you know, help us name a pair of underwear, things like that. I was, you know, I was like, what? <laughs> and they all like sold out basically immediately. And we um we reached our goal of ten thousand dollars in three days, and then doubled it by the end of the month. Oh. Um, and that was like that 
that kind of changed everything because I had a, a chapter of my story that I often forget is that I had I quit my job full-time job as a lawyer and actually found part-time work as a lawyer elsewhere while the company and my idea was that I'd need a bit of time to get the social enterprise off the ground and obviously I knew I couldn't pay myself from it so the day I started the job was basically the day that we launched the crowd the part-time job was the day we launched the crowdfunding campaign and I, <laughs> I just decided I was like I need to quit I need to quit this part-time work I need to do Nisa full-time <laughs> and so I quit after working there for about three days and it was because <laughs> I just felt like that was very embarrassing highly embarrassing but I knew that I had been talking to someone at the time and they um they had advised me that, well, I just like the idea of fa- failing fast. So the idea is that, you, you know, your, your success or failure, you know, it's basically you can accelerate the growth or decline of your business by just throwing everything at it. So if it's not going to work, you can just think of that really slowly over a long period of time, or you can basically bring that pain forward by just giving a lot of money and a lot of time to it and seeing how it goes. And I quite liked that idea. I liked just knowing, giving it my all and just seeing if it would work in six months rather than in two years. So that's kind of why I made that decision. And yeah, quit my job, devoted myself full-time to Nisa, and then I guess the rest is history. And and that first um, uh, amount of money, $20,000, it doesn't sound like a lot to uh, set up a workroom, employ, yeah. you know, three or four people full time, yeah. buy mm-hmm. machinery, buy fabric ahead of time in order to be yeah. able to then, you know, have stock sitting there to sell, to yeah. pay the rent on a store, to develop a website, to do some yeah. marketing. To It yeah. sounds to me like that $20,000 had run out in a couple of weeks. <laughs> yeah, well, that's definitely true now. So when we, when we started, we had all of our employees were working part-time and now their hours have increased quite a bit so that was helpful but generally like we (laughs) what I've learned uh, you know uh, it's crazy how when you don't have much money in business you get really good at making every single penny count you know I was I talked to people about how much it cost them to do a photo shoot and people sometimes set aside five to ten grand and I think to myself, you know, I can get that done for $400. You know, I, it's, it's just about saying, you know, what do we have and what can we do with this? And how can I bring a vision to life within a really confined budget? And because we, because of our story and what we're trying to achieve, the bigger point is that people will just bend over backwards for us and help us in ways that we could never have imagined. You know, we've had an amazing photographer, Virginia Woods-Jack, who's, you know, really like worked for us for so little money. And like, there are so many people just like her who, you know, will work at much less than their normal hourly rate just to help us get on our way. Um, And so that's how you make $20,000 last for a long, long time. (laughs) And, um, but yeah, the main thing I decided to do with that money actually was take on a production manager. So I was so... And it's the best thing I decision I think I've made actually from the very beginning, um, because I found a lovely employee who'd, who'd been in the industry for twenty years, 
um, she's a Kiwi and she has worked in a factory. She had a fact, first factory job when she was 16 and now has her own small business that she works in a few days a week. Um, and so, and she just professionalized the entire operation, trains everyone, manages all the production systems, does our product development. And it's just that level of expertise that has allowed us to absolutely thrive and make an amazing product. And when you were getting started, mm. uh, leaving, mm. you, you, um, you're you working in front of the top law firms mm. in the country and uh, mm. in, in an area of law um, that, that's really highly kind of um, uh, competed for in uh, mm. litigation. And, you know, that, that that's, uh, you know, a super prestigious place to be. And did people kind of mm. say that you were um, – you know, you you were bananas to be setting out to try and do something that was quite unproven with quite a few elements that were difficult. Because you had said you yeah. got quite good support, but did did anyone kind yeah. of like um, take you aside and say, uh, "Have you thought this through?" Yeah, um, no, they didn't. Uh, but I think it's because that would be like a bit of a downer. You know, no, no. <laughs> Because the assumption behind that is like, I don't think it's going to work. And I want you to realize that too. And like, like, so yeah, but I, I was actually very, very worried about quitting my job because I was a little bit embarrassed, you know, sorry, this is my full-time job. Um, because yeah, I thought to myself, oh, you know, law is a really conservative profession. People are just going to think that I'm basically batshit insane and that like, and, you know, kind of give you the oh, good luck with the eyebrows raised and, like, we'll see you back here in a year. <laughs> you know, that that kind of look. And I was really worried about that. But it, I was so delighted because it, exactly the opposite was true. So I was really nervous about these kind of, like, you know, strange looks and, like, you know, what a dreamer kind of, you know, feelings. But I people, you know, would come up to me in the corridor that I'd, you know, spoken to maybe once or twice since I started there and, you know, would be like, oh, I heard about what you're going to do and I think it's amazing, you know, you're so brave and being genuinely supportive and I thought, man, if this, you know, if, if lawyers think I can do it, means maybe I've got a shot. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's so cool. Um, what, so you, you mentioned the... Um production manager as a real turning point for the business. How about some of the other kind of moments like um, the media support or the pop-ups where you saw that maybe um, there was a wider community uh, ready to be interested in this? Ooh, dun, dun, dun. Sorry, Alicia, we've just lost you there. Hello. Sorry, oh, sorry. I, I just oh, pressed, I just pressed mute on my. That, that, that's cool. Oh, <laughs> I've got a little fat fat cheek, and I pressed mute with it with my cheek by accident. <laughs> no, no, no. So, 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 um, so I'll just say, say um, uh, yeah. you know, other people interested in supporting this. Yeah. Um. So the media has been crucial for us. So every time we're in the newspaper or a magazine, or especially television, so we've been covered on both Seven Sharp and the Project. You, you know, it is phenomenal. So we've, you know, we, before we started our pop-up, we were in a really tight spot financially. Um, and, and at that time, the project was filming a little cliff about us. And, you know, the the interviewer was like, oh, 
you know, what would be your advice to other entrepreneurs? And I was like, don't do it. And they were like, you have to be a bit more positive than that. <laughs> and I was like, I was just feeling so low. And then we, and this was like filming in, you know, a, and the story was vaguely about the fact that we're having a pop-up a few days later in line with um, World Refugee Day. And so I set up the pop-up and I was just thinking, oh God, we're going to have to, we're going to have to shut up soon. Well, you know, shut up shop, you know, things are not going very well right now. And we were on the news. We And <laughs> that night, the pop-up opened the next day. And within four days, I think we'd sold, you know, basically all of our stock, which I think was about 20 or 30 grand worth. Um, and so it was just the most phenomenal response and you know getting people emailing us just saying how much they love the product and how inspired they were and then other businesses reaching out to us as well saying oh we own you know a billboard company or we own a poster company can we do a free campaign for you you know all of these um all these people really hoping that we're going to make it and supporting us to get there um that was a huge turning point and just showed me that it was possible like the business model was possible um, but yeah, there have been so many other turning points along the way, and a lot of it has coincided with media coverage we've we've had. So yeah, definitely, like people say, traditional media is dead, and I would definitely beg to differ from in my experience anyway. You've been really open, like you mentioned there, Alicia, about mm. the um, you, you know we're down to uh, mm. you, you know things were very hard cash flow wise, mm. and then talk mm. about some of the figures of the sales and stuff. Mm. And mm. I think that's been really interesting, having watched the journey from the sidelines. You know, I mm. love it when business owners are honest and open about uh, those peaks and troughs. And I also saw you mention somewhere that you, because you came from what you'd called a relatively privileged position, and had mm. family to support you, and had had a good career, and had some savings, and had a partner to mm. support you, you'd been yeah. able to get through those periods. But mm. that other people might not have. What, what could oh, be, absolutely. What could be done to to help more people be able to start businesses that have a social good purpose, not just a money making purpose? Uh, mm. When it's so hard for someone of your um, means and experience and capabilities, mm. How, mm. How, how could more people who weren't so equipped be able to do it? Um, that's really hard because you can't just magically make cash appear. Um, if only that was possible. <laughs> and so, you know, family and friends have been really helpful at like providing us with cash to get through like big purchase orders we've had to make or, you know, big expenses we've had that we can then pay back later. And I guess you can get that same thing from the bank, but like that, the amazing thing about having your family and friends involved is that you don't have that, you know, those interest repayments. And then also one thing that I feel strongly about is that I I've got so much you know existing stress and pressure to keep on keep things going and to build the business I didn't want the idea that I'd then be like chased by the bank is like too much for me <laughs> so I was I just don't I don't really want to go down that route mm. I want I want to be free and, you know, I feel proud of what I done, I've done, but not in any way shackled by it. And so I think that's what this privilege has given me, which is the support of friends and family. So if I did want to step away, I could. And I think this, you know, if you didn't have that, you just end up basically more trapped because you're forced to go to the bank 
or get basically capital from other places which come with certain hooks that you might not necessarily like. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's a really hard one because, it, you know, capital is just the lifeblood of business and there's no – and to basically you need capital far in advance of sales to really make anything work. So, you know, it's one of those things where you can't – you have to – you can't rely on existing demand to spur growth of the business. You actually have to invest and that money has to come from somewhere. Yeah, especially if you're doing uh, the the work of building a workforce and a factory. You yes. can't even just contract yes. out and wait a while no. to pay them as so many kind yes. of fashion businesses do. And fa- yeah. fashion's such a bung model as well and that, you know, you end up yeah. operating a bank for all of your customers because they take ages to pay you you, That's, you oh, incurred so, the cost such a long time yeah, ago this is this is a really interesting thing um that i was thinking about yesterday actually which is the benefits and the costs of running you know what people would call like a b2c model rather than a b2b model so business to customer rather than business to business so traditionally fashion is operated in the b2b space where fashion designers create a collection outsource production of it to either a production facility or out workers who work in the community or, you know, a production facility overseas. And then they, but they do it on the basis of pre-sales. So stores have already committed to buying, you know, X number of units from their collection based on a sample collection. So they have, you know, security of, you know, of the fact that they know they're going to sell X units. Therefore they go into production based off those orders um, but the problem, of course, is cash flow. So sometimes um, the people who buy from you, so retailers will pay their invoices like up to six months after they've actually received the stock. Like, can you believe that? And you might have actually ordered production six months prior. Yeah. So that's like a totally bung business model. That's just that just riles me up. But I, at the same time, it's really hard for retailers as well. So there's no point just blaming anyone. It's just a hard model. It's, it's just totally, um, it's totally cooked. <laughs> yeah. And then, um, but then of course we, so we, and then the margins aren't very good because you actually have to, sit, a lot of retailers take about 50% of the price of the garment. Mm. Um, and so you, you're operating at such slow margins. That's why a lot of business, fashion businesses basically go under. Um, and so, you know, B, B2C or selling directly to customers is amazing because you, you, you're not squeezed in the same way you are with a retailer. But it means that you have to create a brand and invest so much in brand development to a crazy degree because you are solely responsible for the you know, informing people about your brand and getting them onto your website to buy. You know, there's no kind of fortuitousness about it at all. It's not like you go into a store and stumble upon it. Yeah, you have to make... You have to make every single sale. You have to make Um, every shop window that all of your retailers were making and every single customer connection. Yeah, exactly. So it's... um, so you do lose an amazing network when you have retailers. You know, you've got a team of people who are out there selling your product, whereas when you're selling direct... It's just you, you know, um, and that's that's beautiful because it means that we can completely tailor the customer experience, but it also makes you really vulnerable through time to very large swells in customer demand. So nothing's even about it at all. We are, it's a total boom or bust. 
And and so with your business model, that so that B two C part is through your website, and also yep. you've just opened your first store, which is yeah. uh, you know an, an amazing thing for creating mm. those relationships um, mm, with mm. the customers. Do you have many stockists? Do you, do you do those as well? We've got a few around New Zealand, and we're actually about to try to get some more on board. But um, I think we view that more as a marketing exercise because <laughs> we cut, we almost lose money through having other people stock our stuff. So yeah, we the future is I guess the idea, the dream though, is that you increase production. You basically can make more, um, which is good in itself because it means that we can provide more employment to people. So up to up to this point, we've been like really focusing on building the brand and we feel like we've done that really well because we've got a really loyal following people who love the product and now it's just a question of volume how can we get more like retailers on board how can we make more of what we're currently doing tell me about the prices because Mm. um Mm. to to me with a bit of experience Mm. uh in making clothes in new zealand they look really good they look uh, very inexpensive, but still yeah. thirty six mm. bucks for a pair of mm. um, briefs versus, mm. you know, literally um, dollars in mm. in a chain store for um, mm. cotton briefs. I imagine quite a few people find it hard to understand why they cost what they do. Yeah, we actually have had a few people like really offended um, that we charge $36 for a pair of brief and kind of adopt like how could you do that thinking but you know it's that's basically what it costs us to produce and if we were to lower the price would go out of business so for us it's you know we never set out to create like you know we never how can I say this we, we feel to a certain extent like we don't have any choice um but at the same time, I'm actually really proud of our pricing because, you know, you look at other other lingerie companies that actually produce overseas, and if they're if they're going for like, I guess more of a luxury demographic, they're charging between fifty and a hundred dollars for a pair of briefs that cost them probably a few dollars to make, and so our margins are really really tight, um, and we but we passionately believe that we want to keep our prices as low as we can to make it as accessible for as many people as we can. But we just can't get it any lower than what we're doing right now without basically undermining everything we've built. And without having a bit of margin, Mm. you get into this kind Mm. of um, arms race where the companies that do Mm. go overseas and make them for Mm. less but sell them for more – then have mm. more money to spend on building their brand and looking cool and looking good, which just yeah. which just builds their demand and makes yours harder to kind of justify. Which is a yeah. um, it's it's a really funny thing where as a country we've got all these laws around labour protection mm. and environmental mm. kind of discharge from printing facilities and all mm. the rest of it, and then we just let people import things that are made in ways that we know are terrible. It's uh, totally. it's a pretty remarkable thing. That's real. That's why we're really excited about opening our new shop with the workshop inside it because we want to show people that a human hand was behind every single stitch on your garment. So I think you know we're so people are so focused on like tech innovation and how everything's becoming automated and and you know our lives are becoming easier and people assume that like if a t-shirt is five dollars it's because a robot made it. 
Yeah, sure, everyone uses sewing machines, but a human has put every single line of stitching through a machine and has handled it and has maneuvered it and has sewn it. Um, and I think we really, you know, we just kind of assume that that hasn't happened because it's so cheap, but I can assure you it absolutely has. And so we want to honour the people who have made our clothes that like protect us from the cold weather outside, make us look pretty, all of those things. We want we want to celebrate the skill that goes into creating a garment and show people what's actually involved. So we have about 10 industrial sewing machines in our workshop. So a cool thing is we want to say, you know, your one pair of underwear involves about eight of these machines and they each do different things. You know, most people think of their little domestic machine at home, but industrial production looks so different from that. Um, yeah, and so we're really excited about saying, you know, this is what it looks like to make a garment. And so in your retail space, and yeah. what, what yeah. just opened up in Willis Street in Wellington, mm. the mm. workroom is, you can see all the machines going. And are they, is it kind of, yes. is it through a window or is it on the shop floor? No. Or? So for better or worse, I'm not sure if this is a wise decision yet, but <laughs> um, we, um, yeah, so the workroom's actually like, there is no barrier. So it's just there. <laughs> so you've got the shop and then you've got the workshop and people kind of have to walk through the workshop to actually get to the shop. Sorry, we've just lost you again with the sound there, Alicia. I thought about putting up some barriers, but then I also thought, um, First and foremost, it's a workspace, and I didn't want people to be walking around these weird barriers. You know, it's just – it's really nice to have a completely open floor plan so that people can move and move around the space as they as they want. And a functioning workroom is a place mm. where, you know, there's a lot of enjoyment and, and mm. um, you know, a lot of feelings of progress when you're making things yeah. and people chatting. Yeah. And, and, and I imagine that yours is especially interesting because uh, – mm. You know, you've been so great at telling the stories of the people who work for you, and I love mm. to I love to think you'd said that English is the only common language everyone has. So there's a lot of laughs and a lot of um, uh, small misunderstandings a day that keep the day moving. <laughs> oh, totally! It's very like, yeah, it happens all the time, and it also means that you know things take longer to do because you can't assume you can't assume anything. So you know most. Kiwis know about holiday pay at some basic level, whereas, like, you know, for our employees, it's, you know, you have to really be like, you know, you're given four weeks of annual leave a year. This is what that looks like. The, you know, if you go, oh, if you take more than that, you won't get paid. You know, if, it's you have to explain every single thing because you can't take anything for granted. And that just takes time, but it's also so worth it because, you know, it's, the idea of someone being shut off from society or not really understanding what's going on with their own lives is just not an option. And so now having, um, I mean, how, kind of two years-ish is it now that you've been Yeah, going? well, so we actually, I was thinking about this the other day, we're having a launch party for our store on Thursday, and that's exactly one year from when we launched our um website like our online store one year ago and then we started the workshop about six months before that so it's yet 
about just a year, a year and a half at this point. Wow, that's so much in a year and a half. <laughs> yeah. And, and and how does it feel like now now that you've got to a stage where there is um you, you know the the, the regularness enough of custom yeah. to open a store and um yeah. this is all happening. How, how does it feel now? Um, it feels it's re- really it's probably not the best time for me to talk about it because it's really scary opening a store, <laughs> especially in the age of like where basically the general trend is for bricks and mortar to be to be dead, you know, and shops are closing up left, right, and centre. And you think, oh God, if H and M can't do it, how can I? <laughs> but I think we we're offering something really different. So one reason I was really excited about having a workroom and a retail store in the same place is that we don't actually really need to hire retail staff. It will just be someone from the team who helps you. You know, someone will get up from the machine, I'll get off the computer, whatever, and we'll just chat together with customers and, you know, come up with something that works for them. You know, it's quite um, beautiful in a way because it's just, you know, there's no one sitting there twiddling their thumbs waiting for someone to enter the store. <laughs> it's just us going about our business and then, like, from time to time helping a customer. Um, and it also brings the entire team into the customer service process, which I think will be amazing and give people a much greater understanding of who our customers are and how they feel about the garments. Yeah, um, yeah. And having a point of difference in the experience yeah. of the store and the people who really care about it and can tell you the story because they do it is yes. I mean, that's the kind of retail that that is is thriving in the world something that's so yeah. interesting exactly so yeah it's going to be yeah we we've had to so on saturdays and the same one of our sewers will be looking after the shop you know and she'll be there for the whole day and that she'll be just doing customer service on saturday because the workshop won't be open and she will have made the garments you know, imagine trying on a bra and the person who's fitting you is actually the one that made it. You know, that's pretty special. Some of the skills as well that you've mm. got in your uh, workshop and that you're yeah. uh, fostering, they're skills mm. that were pretty much gone from New Zealand. And so, uh, <laughs> like yeah. underwear making um, mm. with underwire, it mm. used to be with uh, Bendon and Burley that there was this enormous yeah. local industry and so many talented uh, sewers yeah. and so mm. much knowledge. And then it all just went. And a couple of years ago, before you set up, it yeah. was nearly impossible to get an underwire bra done. Uh, yeah. It was nearly impossible to get swimwear made. And yeah. so you've actually, um, you, you know, like, like salvaged uh, part of the industry. That's quite a remarkable thing, isn't it? Yeah, it's funny though because the really sad thing is that once, so you think people think about businesses and the relationship with their customers as as being as that as that being the main relationship, but actually for a business to thrive, the industry around that business needs to be really secure and thriving itself because every business relies on thousands of suppliers and relationships themselves to generate their product. And so what I've definitely found is that, you know, I, not many businesses could say this, but we, I think our business would have been a lot stronger if it had been around 20 years ago, because we now have to import a lot of stuff that once we could have purchased in New Zealand. So we're having to buy elastics at about 1.5 kilometers of elastic per color from Portugal. So you imagine we've got about 10 or 12 kilometers of elastic sitting in the workroom right now. 
And the reason is we have to deal directly with factories and buy at their minimum order quantities because there's no middlemen to basically order things and then break it up by between like a hundred different users. And although you save a margin, you've then got a kilometre of elastic to oh, worry about and pay for. Exactly. So that creates huge cash flow problems. But then, the yeah, I remember the day, <laughs> It was it's a really joyous day when I have to do new elastic orders because that happened maybe eight months ago. We had to reorder more of the elastics from the same supplier. And I'm like, we have used up 10 kilometres, 10,000 metres of elastic in about seven or eight months. I was like, that is insane. Sorry, we've just lost you to the um the mute button. I think again. Oh, sorry. Sorry, sorry. and, <laughs> we, and you're saying you're saying we've we've just ordered ten thousand meters. Yeah. So yeah, we've just we had ordered ten thousand meters. Oh, sorry. Yeah. What was I saying? Um, we yeah. So we'd gone through about ten thousand meters in about seven or eight months, and so to then need to reorder was a totally monumental thing and I was like this is absolutely insane I thought we'd be going through this elastic for years to come <laughs> so we got we got there eventually but yeah it was um the fact that the New Zealand industry has been absolutely decimated makes it so hard for other New Zealand manufacturers to stay in business so hard so I think honestly that like one of the reasons for the for the domino effect has been that as soon as one supplier falls or as soon as one production facility closes down, the people that used to work there then retrain into other industries. You lack the, you lack the la- the labor force basically goes away. Um, and then also all of the parts you need become so much harder to source because you're having to get them in from overseas at really large quantities. So it's really, it's definitely an uphill battle for everyone who keeps their production in New Zealand because of those same factors. And, and as you've mentioned, the knowledge mm. of the market goes as well. Yeah. So people used to understand what went into making clothing, mm. and now mm. they just see it as, oh, I could get that at Topshop for 50 bucks. And and they've lost that relationship between yeah. the amount of work and the amount of care and the um, – and, and the materials and and any totally. time that things are cheap, they're cheap because either people aren't getting paid or there are mm. government subsidies. And those yep. those are the only two options that you can have for underwear being two dollars a go. <laughs> totally, it, it's funny. I I always think I'm actually thinking maybe of starting up. We um doing classes in the workshop, which are just like a make your own pair of underwear. <laughs> Um, because I think people will quickly realize like the skill and expertise that goes into every single pair. I remember when I started to learn how to sew myself, I went to a little course and I thought to myself, oh, this will be great because it will mean that I can make my own clothes and save a lot of money. To be honest, having learned how to sew, I am now so willing to spend $500 on a jacket. <laughs> because, and it, it had exactly the opposite effect in, in that now I, when I feel really expensive clothes, not that I can actually afford it, I can see why they are that price. I can see the level of thought and time that has gone into creating a really exquisite garment and all of the decisions they've made that make the garment much more expensive but also increase the quality of it. And now that I know those things, I can't turn back. I can't unknow it. So it makes you really – and also, you know, if you make a shirt or a T-shirt yourself, you realize that that takes this home sewer like – a few weeks to do 
And so, and then you, and then you think, oh, you know, let's say it t- takes maybe 15 hours or 10 hours in total. And then you're looking at something that you can buy for $5 and you think, oh man, you know, that I know how long it takes to sew. I know, I know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So it's, it's definitely, I, I love this learning song for that reason, just giving you appreciation of time and quality of garments. And you'd mentioned there that you can't afford it now. If you'd stuck mm. in your law career, no problem yeah. at all. But a year and a half in, yeah. you've only just kind of started even paying yourself anything at all, haven't you? And yes. I guess yeah. I, I wonder what what does success look like for you with the business? Like, um, where where would you like to get it to, and what what's what's the dream for it? Yeah, my dream. I'm quite far away from this at the moment, but my dream is to be able to pay myself a market wage ultimately to make myself replaceable because as long as I am not doing that, no one would ever do what I'm currently doing, Um, which makes the business itself not particularly resilient. So my focus is making the business strong enough to pay myself a market wage and to give everyone else a raise as well well, um, so that in turn it makes it more, it can just continue on for longer. Yeah, and be and be a, a sustainable business in every yes. sense of the word, not just exactly. organic cotton and, and exactly. <laughs> fair work. You know, for for it to be a sustainable business, every single part of it has to be replaceable. And that sounds really brutal, but as soon as you're at the moment, it's so far away from the case, and it means that if any part fails, the whole system falls down. Um, and so that's definitely a scary place to be. So at the moment, I'm focusing on like my number one focuses resilience and making the business able to stand up to a few shocks. And do you feel an extra sense of responsibility Mm. having crowdfunded? I mean, every business Mm. owner has this thing where they tell the community, I'm going to make a business work. And that's a huge responsibility. And they have employees Mm. and that's a huge Mm. responsibility. And they have debts Mm. and they have invested their time into it. They want it to be a success. Mm. But in your case, you had, you've mm. crowdfunded, you've told the story, you've, you've aligned mm. yourself with it, you've got refugee workers who are high, mm. higher needs that you've got a, a mm. duty of care to in the instance. Mm. Um, it must be a huge responsibility. It must, it must be a hard thing to carry. Uh, not, like, not really, to be honest, because I feel like I'm doing my best every day. Um, and, so, and there are so many things that are absolutely outside of my control which ultimately determine the success of the business. So I can like do as much as I can to build a strong database and you know make a great product, but like the forces of market demand and people's preferences are quite you know quite outside of my control, and that will ultimately be what determines the success of the business. How many people care about what we're trying to do, and will give us an opportunity to wow them with an amazing product. We can't force people to do that, so that's really the ultimate deciding factor about what we go on to achieve is whether enough people feel that and will give us that chance that's that's so cool and such a great attitude and thank you thank you so much for sharing your story with us no worries of of nisa yeah, thank you for having me, Simon. Hey, and uh, yeah, if you are listening and you're finding yourself uh, around Wellington, pop into their new space in Willis Street and uh, check out the workroom and the store. And uh, anywhere else listening around the world, you can jump on the website at nisa, nisa.co.nz. Thanks so much for joining us, Alicia. 
Thank you. Cool. Thank you very much, Tina, for producing Tina Tiller. And thank you very much for listening, having us along in your ears. Cheers. You've been listening to Business is Boring, presented by Simon Pound. And brought to you by The Spin-Off and Callahan Innovation. From the Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring, brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.